in some cases, insurance carriers may be overpaying the attackers just to kind of get the case over with, but that can perpetuate the ransomware cycle and incentivize the attackers. Hi, welcome to Tech News This Week. I'm your host, Tech Target News Director, Anton Gonsalves. On today's show, we're going to discuss what to consider before using third-party AI in your business, NVIDIA's moves into generative AI, and why security professionals are rattled by the growing influence of cyber insurance companies. First up is third-party AI in business. Every day, tech vendors are announcing some type of AI in their products. So it's a good idea to step back and think about what they are asking you to do. They're asking to run your data through their AI engines on the promise of delivering intelligence that make your business more efficient and employees more productive. Here to explain the risk associated uh, with third-party AI tools is T. Ravi Chandran, an Associate Dean for Research at Lally School of Management at Renacella Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. So, uh, you know, so what should businesses consider when uh, allowing a vendor to, uh, you know, become so embedded in their business operations? So you mentioned generative AI, and uh, I think the more popular ones that uh, we have heard of in the news is ChatGPT and and the more recent versions of it. Uh, As a class of technology, generative AI uh, uh, is is an artificial intelligence system that takes content that it has kind of learned that is available on the web and through that it is able to generate new content. Uh, now uh, companies are embedding this tool as, uh, uh, as a feature in many of the software that uh, they are selling to platforms that they're selling to companies and companies are trying to use them. Um, that There are many challenges that uh, arise with this. Uh, first is uh, if we talk about um, uh, IP as a as a space to kind of consider the challenges. Um, the content that uh, these generative AI systems create um, is learned based on content that is out there on the web. Uh, if you take images, for example, uh, um, text to image generation, you can give a prompt uh, to say, okay, generate a, an image of a chicken with a top hat, okay? Uh, in order to do that, the technology kind of learns quite a bit about various configurations of, you know, chicken figures and top hat figures and puts them together and creates an image that is uh, appropriate for the prompt that you gave. But when it is learning that, it is using images that is out there uh, on the web. Some of them might be copyrighted. So it's not very clear who owns the copyright for uh, content that is generated from this technology. I think recent uh, uh, rulings, uh, at least from the Copyright Office, is not that clear. For example, there was a a comic uh, book that was generated using images created through this method. Uh, And uh, initially, the copyright was given to the the book. And then subsequently, they reviewed it and resident the copyright, uh, saying that the creator, in this case, the author did not have enough control over the uh, material that was generated, uh, particularly the image. And so the, the copyright was rescinded. And, and subsequently, they kind of granted the copyright for only the 
arrangement of the image and the text in 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 whatever uh, creative fashion that the author did but not for the images themselves so it does create challenges when companies use this in marketing communications or creating images as part of the communication uh, it's not clear whether they own the copyright for it and whether they're liable to be uh, uh, sued or 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 other parties claiming use of it they, others could also probably use of it use it if uh, if they need to because the company may not own the copyright for it so is there is there anything uh, is there any way uh, businesses can uh, protect themselves against uh, say a lawsuit over copyright infringement so so one way to think about it is uh, to use these uh, generative systems to create ideas and create uh, uh, content that is that gives you suggestions and not necessarily explicitly use them as is uh, that may not be as productive as generating content straight away and using it uh, but that pro- perhaps allows for uh, the businesses to claim that there was content that was generated by the system but then our people worked on it and developed it further and so there is a certain claim for ownership uh, that uh, the companies can have on the content it also creates some challenges for example you might hire a third party to develop some content for you and uh, you 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 have to be clear that whether the third party generated the content using uh, these kinds of technologies and if they do then uh, there again you know uh, usually in those contracts you you provide a contract and and the content that is generated by the third party eventually the ip gets transferred and the ownership gets transferred to you as a company but mm-hmm. if the third party had generated it using you know these kinds of technologies um, it's not clear whether that uh, ownership mm-hmm. of ip is 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 yours okay okay so is it uh, uh, so is it time for congress to take a look at this and is there a need for regulation Oh, there certainly is a need for regulation. I think the copyright laws, uh, as we have it, have to be revisited. Given that these technologies are only going to grow in their uh, uh, popularity and use, as well as uh, their overall capabilities will continue to grow. I mean, we've seen examples of uh, you know uh, ChatGPT and and Microsoft Bing using it and creating all kinds of uh, uh, silly errors. but that's just at the start of the uh, it's, it's very nascent and the initial stage in its life cycle uh, as these technologies get deployed they're going to grow in terms of their capabilities and they will become more sophisticated in which case in which time uh, companies will make it uh, it will be compelling for organizations to be able to use that uh, so the copyright laws have to evolve to kind of address this uh, right now we have the fair use uh, doctrine um in in us uh, which um, which has some leeway that uh, allows mm-hmm. uh, organizations to use content that is out there uh, uh, in 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 a reasonable way uh, but it's not clear whether that will those are sufficient to protect uh, companies from uh, uh, potential lawsuits if they using generative ai the challenge is even bigger when you are dealing with code uh, because these technologies can also be used to uh, generate code and right. uh, um so the the again sometimes you know the code that gets generated might be something that gets copied from somewhere else uh, and mm-hmm. there is uh, enough evidence now that, that these generative technologies 
uh, they're not necessarily creating completely new things. They are, they are, they have an ability to harness a lot of information that is already existing there and then right. putting it together in ways that aligns with the user's prompts or requests. Uh, and in that process, some of it could be, you know, uh, replication of what is already there. And mm -hmm. uh, that creates, uh, again, you know, if you're embedding some of the code generated through these technologies in your product, then it's not clear where, whether you have the complete rights to the revenues and, and, and benefits that you generate through those products. So, so there are a lot of gray areas here that needs to be navigated carefully. And uh, already there are lawsuits that are out there um, that are trying to sort these things out. And some of, some of it will become clear as we go forward. But I think that there has to be some legal frameworks that make it uh, even more clearer for mm -hmm. both technology providers and for companies that are using it. Okay, so we're going to have to, so companies are going to have to get their legal teams involved and hopefully uh, at some point the uh, Congress will give us, our politicians will give us some clarity into these issues. Uh, but as you say, it is evolving and it's going to take, uh, take some time. It's an interesting discussion, Ravi, and uh, unfortunately we have to end it here. Uh, you know, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so NVIDIA, uh, NVIDIA's chips, you know, are used to power AI applications. Its success in selling hardware, uh, selling hardware has powered uh, big gains in the company's stock price and revenues. This week at the company's developer conference, uh, NVIDIA unveiled cloud services for building uh, AI models. Here to explain NVIDIA's latest AI moves is tech target reporter Esther Ajao. All right, so what is uh, NVIDIA offering that's new and uh, what can businesses do with it? Yeah, so to this week they uh, they kind of introduced their what they call their foundational platforms. And so this allows companies and enterprises to go and kind of build their own generative AI models. So part of that is NVIDIA Nemo. Uh, which is their large language model. Um, and the new thing with Nemo, which they introduced previously last year, is that now they have this retrieval application. Um, and so it enables, when you're building your model, enables, uh, I guess, for you to have like kind of like a site for the large language model to be able to cite where it gets its sources from and also to kind of um, correct wherever there's an error. Um, and then they have uh, Picasso, and with Picasso, they're working with content stock um, providers like Adobe, Shutterstock, um, as well as Getty Images. Um, and then they have their um, BioNemo, which is working in the medical side of it and trying to do, uh, work with drug discovery process. So those are the things that they're working with, uh, with the generative AI space. They made an emphasis to say, we are providing a place for enterprises, for developers to be able to create their own generative AI models. Um, so this is like nothing new, but the platform is, this is a place for you to work with it yourself and try to figure out what works best for you. And, uh, you know, from our, our previous guests, uh, he brought up concerns over copyright issues in the use of uh, of, uh, of AI, particularly when you're going from text to images, text to video, that type of thing, which I believe NVIDIA is offering. Uh, what steps, uh, how is NVIDIA addressing potential copyright problems? Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. We've had, like your previous guest was talking, obviously there has been lots of Getty uh, images as one of those 
who have sued um, the creators of these texts to images, um, allegedly saying that they use their, uh, you know, copyrighted photos in like being um, in their data sets. And so by partnering with like Getty, by partnering with Adobe, NVIDIA is kind of um, helping uh, develop this kind of like respect for artists is the best way that I can speak about it because these artists have already given their work to these uh, stock providers. And I believe um, Adobe, if I'm not wrong, I love Adobe and Getty, they're providing whatever they get from the creation of these images, uh, generated images, they kind of given the revenue, part of the revenue to the artist. So it's a, a respectful relationship that we are starting to see, um, especially as many artists, not only artists, but mainly artists uh, are concerned about how these new tools are going to take away from them and, and how they're going to, uh, I guess, lead to the elimination of their jobs. Okay. And, uh, you know, last question is, uh, you know, NVIDIA's uh, cloud services, in essence, are going to be competing with what Microsoft and, and Google uh, uh, have. Uh, at the same time, Microsoft and Google are customers of NVIDIA's. They buy their hardware. So um, how do you expect NVIDIA to, to navigate being a, a competitor and a supplier to some of these uh, tech companies? Yeah, I asked them that question. I was like, so you guys are kind of working in a fine line here. And I think their main differentiative factor and what they said is like, we are, we are catering to enterprises, right? Um, and that's what, they, they, that's what they're really focusing on while Google and Microsoft and AWS uh, um, also cater to enterprises. NVIDIA is like, we are solely catering to enterprises. We are solely interested in giving them the tools to be able to create these models. Um, and I think that will be their main competing factor. I mean, Google also last week, like we spoke about, released their APIs that gave um, enterprises and developers the ability to create these models. But NVIDIA is solely focused on that. So I think that is their main competing factor. Uh, we will still have to see who's going to come out on top in this generated uh, generative AI space. But um, it's interesting so far. Yeah, it yeah. certainly is interesting, and there's a lot uh, there's a lot to un unfold over time. So, so we shall see, and we'll be watching, or you'll be watching closely. I will sure. be watching. <laughs> okay, so over the last uh, several years, uh, a growing number of businesses are turning to insurance companies uh, that offer policies to cover damages from cyber attacks. Uh, the, the trend has placed insurance companies in the middle of post-attack investigations. This worries companies and security pros. To tell us why is, the, is Tech Target news writer Ariel Waldman. So how is the role of insurance companies in uh, post-attack investigations growing? Yeah. Um, well, more and more enterprises are needing cyber coverage or they're being told by their boards that they need to implement a policy. So the cyber insurance market is expanding exponentially in itself. Most organizations do have policies and many of those have used those policies multiple times. So it just shows how much of a growth it's experienced. The cyber market um, is increasingly being driven by ransomware attacks. So insurers are becoming more involved in ransomware response. That's one of the main areas where their role has grown immensely. I was going to say, well, so what's the problem with having insurance companies getting involved uh, in these investigations? They do have to protect their interests. Well, during the ransomware attacks, um, threat actors encrypt systems, they exfiltrate data, they demand payments to unlock it. But the worst part is how attackers extortion threats, which are becoming more ruthless. 
They threatened to publicly leak the stolen data if the company does not pay the ransom. So insurers have become more involved in negotiating those payments and assisting with recovery. And enterprises are worried that the insurance insurers may have too much influence when it comes to ransomware response and the decision on whether to pay the ransom or not. In some cases, insurance carriers may be overpaying the attackers just to kind of get the case over with, but that can perpetuate the ransomware cycle and incentivize the attackers. Um, Another challenging area is around notification requirements following an attack. In some cases, the insurers require enterprises to notify the carrier before law enforcement and incident response teams. That can present a problem if the companies are being penalized for notifying law enforcement first, um, contacting Mm -hmm. intelligence and collecting intelligence um, as quickly as possible can be critical. So notifying law enforcement can be really important. And if the insurers are like requiring the companies to notify them before law enforcement, that could present some problems um yeah and i would and i would assume that uh, businesses are in a position where uh, they kind of have to do what the insurance companies tell them or at least consider it seriously because they're depending on getting paid yeah yeah and if those clauses say that if the notification clauses say that they have to you know notify people in a certain order and then they don't do that um yeah then that's not fair to the company no, it isn't. Uh, so in, insurance companies are, you know, tightening policy requirements, uh, right? So uh, yeah. what's, what's behind these uh, the stricter terms? It's actually a positive thing for enterprises that insurers are kind of tightening up in that area. Um, I think the insurers, they, they kind of know where attackers, they're using similar techniques. They're using, um, you know, the ransomware attacks. They're targeting vulnerable com- companies that haven't patched their software, certain software vulnerabilities. They're doing phishing attacks. So the insurers now are kind of trying to look to sew up those holes with, you know, basic security hygiene, which could be, you know, um, employee awareness training, implementing multi-factor authentication to protect um, credentials and passwords. So that's actually been really helpful for the companies. Um, Some security experts say that there's actually been a decrease in attacks because companies are being forced to implement these basic security controls because of cyber insurance, especially for small to medium-sized businesses. All right, that wraps up uh, this week's show. Uh, Thanks for watching uh, and enjoy the weekend.